good afternoon, everyone. Uh, So before I offer the teaching I've prepared for this afternoon, I'd like to offer the opportunity to uh, ask some questions about what's come up for you in practice, uh, perhaps working with the teachings on volition that, um, that Bill gave. I do have one written question that I'll address, which is, um, what is the impermanence of thoughts and how to observe it in vipassana? Other than the impermanence, what else should we try to identify in our thoughts as we observe them? So the impermanence of thoughts is simply that thoughts come and go. They arise. uh, They arise... Um, selflessly have you ever tried to make yourself or have you ever I mean you can you can decide that I'm going to think about something but where did that thought to decide <laughs> come from so thoughts arise spontaneously and, um, and so uh, we see them arise and they pass away um, so they move through us we think them they're gone um, very often people believe that because they think something, it's true. And uh, there's a sign that I once saw on a, um, a bumper sticker at, uh, at a retreat center. It said, don't believe everything you think. Mm-hmm. Which I thought, at the time, I thought that was uh, really, wow, what, what an idea. Not to believe everything I, th- I thought. That was, that was a while ago. <laughs> So, so thoughts come and go. As we observe them in meditation, we can see that uh, when we bring mindfulness to thinking, if we if we notice that we are thinking or that thoughts are thoughts actually just think themselves. There, you know, thoughts come up, and there's a a kind of a train of thought that we get carried away on. But but when we actually mindfully turn toward the thoughts with our attention, they usually dissolve. You know, unless unless we are intentionally reflecting on something, um, you know, bringing our attention to thought to plan something or or to contemplate uh, an idea. Um, and other than impermanence, what else should we try to identify in our thoughts as we observe them? Well, one of the things that we notice in our thoughts uh, is the nature of our thoughts. So so are our thoughts full of sensual desire? Are our thoughts full of uh, criticism, self-criticism, judgment? Uh, So we just just see that, you know, as, as we become aware of thought, we just see it. And, and actually that can be painful to, to realize, to, to encounter the, uh, the conditioned nature, conditioned by afflictive emotions you know, of our thoughts. Uh, and so it's really important that when we see that our thoughts are conditioned by, by greed or anger or, or jealousy or pride or whatever, that that we we open the heart with compassion 
for how painful that is because when when we feel the the thought coming up when we become aware of the thought coming up it's very painful to see that and to and when we experience it in the body when we begin become aware in the body of what sensations arise with thoughts of anger you know grasping and so on you know um we we feel it as painful in the body so so we're really you know it's it's a very uh, courageous practice to turn toward these um these we could call them shadow the shadow side of the mind the the, the part of the mind that we we don't like to encounter that we want to turn away from we want to forget about shut the door distract ourselves um, but to actually recognize ah there it is there's there's greed again you know uh, and and um, and and open to that and then see oh there it goes so it's a thought it's gone we don't have to cling to it we don't have to give ourselves you know all kinds of self talk about you know it's bad to be grasping or angry no it's just recognizing the nature of it and recognizing and that can be not only insight into the the impermanence of thought but also into the dukkha the suffering of of the thought not all thoughts are painful. Some thoughts are very pleasant. Sometimes we get lost in you know, very pleasant thoughts and imaginations, right? So uh, that can also be kind of a, an escape. Um, so that's a few, a few thoughts about thoughts. Uh, any other questions? Wait, what's painful? Is it painful to realize that your thoughts are judgmental or are the thoughts themselves painful? It can be both. Yeah, it can be both. Um, like to 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 feel judgment, you know, about oneself or about another, is is in itself painful. And then I remember when I began to recognize, wow, this mind is judging. You know, I I, I recognized it once at a at a retreat. It just kind of. I saw it all of a sudden. Can you judge yourself for judging? Yeah, I saw, oh my gosh, I'm judging how people do walking meditation, I'm, I'm judging how people eat, I'm judging how they dress. I'm a nice person. <laughs> <laughs> I'm supposed to be kind. I thought I was a nice person, you know. So the image I had of myself was, you know, really shaken. It was an image of self. It was an idea that, that, you know, I, this body-mind process, is a particular way and not other ways. So it was actually really a good thing for that to be shattered, you know. Uh, it was difficult, but it was, it was good. Is it common that we might generate... Uh, equanimity with more difficulty towards emotion than towards thoughts or it depends from person to person maybe so let me just uh, paraphrase to be sure I'm understanding your question so is it 
is it usually more difficult to feel equanimity about emotions than about thoughts? Yeah. Um, well, uh, often, yeah, but uh, but many thoughts have an emotional layer that we might not be aware of. So a thought might be one sort of it might be part of of um, a whole pattern or way of thinking, you know. So so maybe we have a thought about. Um, you know, a belief, a belief about something, you know, and and then, but then, if our belief is 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 challenged, it may engender fear. So so very often thoughts and emotions and body sensations are connected. I mean, I saw, I thought they were. Different. I mean, separate. But I can see the, the one being generated by another. But are you saying that it's sort of a habitual package that in one person, like one pot, will come and per habit, the emotion will come? Let me just ha- take step back and 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 have another take on responding to your question. Uh, equanimity is actually a quality of mind. Of balance, mental balance, in which we um, uh, we accept that things are as they are. So there's a it's a quality of acceptance, and um, doesn't mean that we're indifferent, or but it it means that you know even if if we're going to respond, there's there's a certain there's a degree or a, or a lot if there's a lot of equanimity. Of acceptance that this is how it is, and and equanimity is something is a quality of mind that arises through insight. That when we see that that thoughts, emotions are impermanent, are you know arising selflessly, then you know are empty of self then that equanimity is there. So it's not so much whether thoughts or emotions are, are you know, easier to be equanimous about, but it's, 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 the, it's that equanimity which is present through practice that receives our experience, whether it's, you know, inner experience or what the world, you know, what, what we encounter in life. Conditioning. Yes. It's a conditioning of the mind, yeah. yeah. 
And so, uh, I guess I'm, in meditation, then, that's all a mind, right? It's a, it's a, it, meditation is also the, all the skills that we're learning in meditation about, you know, mindfulness and and uh, investigation, investigating into the, you know, um, into the uh, impermanent and unreliable or unsatisfactory and selfless nature. Those are all ways that the mind is being conditioned. Well, it's it's biological. It's psychophysical. Uh, it's 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 of the mind. I guess you know there are neural pathways yeah, that sure. that uh, reflect those. So I'm wondering if, in your opinion, um, liberation from attachment is also the liberation from attachment to so so the way I, I like to uh, ex- express this is that is that the Dharma is a way that we recondition the mind to decondition the mind so that it opens to the unconditioned Well, yes and no. There is a way in which seeing, like, you know, when I talked about perception, there is a way in which a newborn will see, you know, things as, you know, a, a whole, the wholeness of things, mm-hmm. the unity, um, because a baby doesn't discriminate. And a baby is not enlightened. A baby is subject to all kinds of of desires and fears and, you know, screams when they're uncomfortable. <laughs> yeah. So so a baby is not enlightened, but there is a way, a, a certain quality of mind that we can see um, uh, that is is there in, in a kind of, we could call it a, a natural state. But... Um, but it's not, they're not equivalent by any means because there's a lot of development of the mind that happens um, by, through, through um, uh, you know, developing virtue and kindness and, and compassion and, and understanding how, uh, how we're driven by, you know, our... our uh, our desires and our, our fears and aversion and so on. Um, so so it's it's not equivalent. But but yeah, you could say that these are all all the Dharma teachings are skillful conditionings of the mind, and and that they that we learn to um, not cling to the mind, mm-hmm. so that we open to the unconditioned, which is. Um, Ultimate truth or the ground of being—it's—it's not—it's um, not something that is contained or or uh, or emerges from the brain or the body. Um, there's a line from a Rumi poem which says, 
<clears throat> this we are now, in other words, this presence, this ultimate truth, uh, created the body cell by cell like bees building a honeycomb. Uh, the human body and the universe grew from this, not the universe, not, not this from the universe and the human body. So in other words, it's saying it's from the ground of being, it's from this ultimate truth that everything emerges. So that's, that's, um, that's, that's the teaching on, uh, you know, sort of the absolute nature of... And I think I get that intellectually, that absolutely every cell in everybody's body, everything, is all made of the same stuff, that we have no choice, <coughs> or no free will, that there is no self. Intellectually, I get that, but I don't seem to feel that when I'm meditating. So this is... You know, I mentioned three stages of there's the hearing of the teaching and then there's the the understanding and experiencing of it and then there's the full realization of it. So so the so so hearing and sitting and meditating and and reflecting on the teaching is is important and so you know, it it takes time. You know, um, it, it it's it's a process. And is there a special kind of meditating that you can do that? <laughs> 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 I've experienced it. Like I have experienced it before, but I don't think I really meditated before. Like I have experienced. Um, oh my God! Look at these hands; they're amazing. I I've, I've experienced that like for, for ten minutes, like twice in my life. I've experienced. Oh, oh my God. But, but people have talked about enlightened people, mm-hmm. but it's like 10 minutes, and I didn't get there by meditating. So I'm trying to get there so, again for good. So, yeah, <laughs> so it's important not to cling to experiences that we have, because experiences are a kind of a nourishment that we get on the path. Sometimes people have, you know, profound experiences, and, and they do feed us, they do nourish us. But if we keep trying to get back to them, it actually becomes an impediment to our development. So, so it's really uh, it's really a continual unfolding, and um, and you know, if if your heart is really um, kind of oriented toward the truth, toward toward awakening. Then, then trust that. <laughs> yeah. Well, patience is one of the important uh, aspects of practice. I, I, one more question, and that's it. This might also might be a dumb question too, but we're talking about conditioning and undoing our conditioning. But what if we? What if our conditioning was to be mindful and to be open? What if the Dalai Lama was my dad? Like, what have are is everybody trying to undo their conditioning, or are just all of us a little bit messed up? We've been messed up <laughs> down the road, like, or it's good. It's good. Yeah, I mean, some people had had um, really a wonderful, lots of love and. And um, maybe we're taught altruism, 
you know, in their families, to really to always think of others, to not be self-absorbed. Others, pe- other people were were put down. Yeah, other people were put down and you know demeaned, and other people were taught, you know, as kids, you know, you got to make it in the world. Doesn't matter, you know, what you do, you've got to get on top. You know, so there are many, many conditionings, and some are, uh, you know, more. Um, diluted, and some are some are more skillful. So some people require less unwinding than others. Some people have many strengths, you know, and all of us, all of us do. Like you wouldn't be here, you wouldn't be sitting in this room, if you didn't have many wonderful qualities, and a heart which really, you know, aspires to. Uh, to be free, to be more loving. And we all are here uh, because of causes and conditions. You know, we've come to this place to to work, to ponder about this, these teachings, and you know, to support each other in this practice. So, so I'm, um, you know, you're. It's it's one of the reasons why it's lovely to be on retreat because you know, there's a a commonality, a shared pur- purpose, shared intention. <clears throat> so, um, so I'd like to talk today uh, about. Um, I, well, I'd like to begin with a um, little verse, uh, a, a very pithy teaching by a Tibetan Lama of the 20th century uh, named Kala Rinpoche. I'm going to read it twice because it's so pithy. (laughs) We live in illusion and the appearance of things. There is a reality. You are that reality. When you understand this, you see that you are nothing, and being nothing, you are everything. That is all. We live in illusion and the appearance of things. There is a reality. You are that reality. When you understand this, you see that you are nothing. And being nothing, you are everything. That is all. So, uh, so I, I'd like to reflect on this going line by line, because I think each line is so rich. So we live in illusion and the appearance of things. Uh, Bill and I have been talking in this retreat about how we live in illusion and the appearance of things. Uh, One of the basic teachings in Buddhism is that uh, the the obscurations, the the reasons, the 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 processes that can that that keep us from knowing our true nature, that we are boundless, that we are 
this open, pure awareness that we are this unbounded love, which is our true nature, that uh, that that it is this delusion of separateness, this idea that we are uh, a separate self somehow, that we have a permanent um, uh, selfhood, and that we are autonomous as a self. So, and this is this is mistaking for what has no inherent existence as being concretely real. And, and uh, some of the images that are given in Buddhist teaching is that our self, the sense, the self that we believe is so concrete is like a rainbow. It's, it, it comes together under certain conditions. Like, you know, we see a rainbow when there's light shining through uh, a mist of light rain. And, um, or it's like a lantern, you know, the burning of oil and a wick. Uh, it's a process. And um, so uh, so the, the self is a label that we are putting on an interdependent process. Uh, we're, um, we're breathing every moment. We're breathing in and out. You know, this, this is a teaching on our interdependent existence. You know, we're we're drinking water, um, we're eating food. We're we in many ways we rely on community uh, for our our lives and and well being. So um, so this uh, this is this is one of the ways that we live in illusion. So um, so. So the delusion of separateness, separate self, and out of this delusion grows attachment. Um, and I like the way Alan Wallace uh, talks about attachment uh, in his book, Buddhism with an Attitude. He says, attachment is not simply desire, but entails superimposing desirable qualities upon objects and screening out undesirable qualities. The result is craving. Attachment is distorted awareness in which we idealize an object. If only I could go there, have that job, that spouse, that car, then I would be happy. Idealization creates a fiction that we, that we cling to, when we conflate a person with a superimposed fiction, we might fall in love with the wonderful, wonderful fiction and later be disappointed that the person changed. So, so this, um, this process of, um, of superimposing our, our fantasy or idealization is one of the things that the Buddha addresses and when he he asks us to meditate on the body, and and uh, and in in the um, the basic one of the basic uh, discourses on mindfulness called the Four Foundations of Mindfulness, you know, he he leads the he he offers these these meditations in which the body is deconstructed. You know, there's hair, 
there's nails, there's skin, there's bone, there's uh, there's saliva. You know, so what is this body? It's you know, and he also tells the the people who are practicing with him, go to the charnel grounds where the bodies were put to decompose. You know, and and just watch the body decompose. Is it really so beautiful as as you are idealizing? Is it really not to say that the body isn't a wonderful thing, but it's to counterbalance this 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 way that we uh, attach an, a kind of a, an idea about how beautiful a body may be, and we filter out the not so beautiful parts, right? Um, so, um, so uh, attachment uh, is on a spectrum of of liking um, all the way to you know to grasping and craving. And then the third, the third uh, uh, way that we are um, we live in illusion is. Um, is aversion, which um, also can appear on a, on a spectrum of intensity, uh, from mild irritation to hatred, and it's the complement to desire. So aversion superimposes disagreeable qualities on our experience and filters out the desirable or neutral ones. And so it's the appearance and the conditioning of 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 delusion and grasping and aversion that causes suffering in the mind. And so, you know, if you're wondering where do the five hindrances fit together with these uh, three obscurations, it's just different ways that those uh, that those are expressed. That delusion, uh, um, attachment, and aversion are expressed in the five hindrances. They're also expressed in many afflictive emotions uh, that that we could name that are named in other teachings, such as jealousy and pride and um, and so on. So, so, so these basic um, uh, delusion, grasping, and aversion are are one of the ways that we're caught in illusion that that the mind is colored and we don't see things clearly. <clears throat> Another way we could talk about this is um, is the that we're caught in the appearance of things simply by the way we take things in through our senses that we in, that we interpret our experience through our senses. We so you know we we commonly think that you know. Okay, I'm, I'm here, and then the rest of the world is out there, right? So I'm, I'm sort of existing in this environment, and that's that's a that's a commonsensical notion. But when we look more deeply and think about it, you know, our senses actually tell us a very small part of what is out there. We have there's just a range of visible light that we can take in through the eye. There's a range of audible sound that we can take in through the ear. 
there are many, many different kinds of, of waves and vibrations that exist. Um, and, you know, it's just the equipment we have. You know, some people who are very sensitive can, can sense different kinds of, uh, of vibrations, perhaps on, a, on an emotional level or, um, or on a thought level. You know, we hear about people who can do that kind of thing. So, so we hear sound. We we hear, you know, a bird, uh, and we think that the bird, you know, is out there, and we're hearing the sound that the bird is making. We're we're actually receiving waves. This is. I'm not telling you anything esoteric. We're receiving waves on in our inner ear, and and the vibration of the inner ear is interpreting them into uh, different sounds, which then the brain uh, interprets. You know, we have perception. If we had never heard a bird before, uh, we might not know what that is. You know, if we had never heard a car before, if we had come from a place where there was no cars, we might not recognize the sound of a car. So, so our perception would not tell us, okay, name, car. So, so I've talked about perception, but, but it, it reinforces this idea that, you know, the world is out there and we are in the world where actually the world is taking birth, taking shape through our senses and in consciousness. So it's like, you know, a radio is sitting here and uh, it's just sitting here and then we turn it on and it begins to pick up radio waves and and play them it if it's turned on and it's tuned to a certain channel it picks up radio waves it doesn't pick up all the waves it picks up a certain frequency and in a way we can compare our senses to that <clears throat> so so but we think that's we think that that's the whole world and we think that we're in the world whereas actually in in a way, we can understand that the world is in us, right? The world is in our hearing, in our seeing, you know, the light waves coming in, the interpretation of the mind. So, um, so we create our world. Different perceptions um, create different worlds. We make it part of the story we've received. So, um, so perhaps we see somebody who's dressed in a way we're not used to, and if we have received, um, you know, a certain kind of conditioning in our lives that, you know, that it's bad to dress in an unusual way, then maybe the mind rejects that or goes into um, judgment. You know, uh, and creates a story about that, or 
or maybe we've grown up in in a you know in a way and 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 our life experience has been very broad and and we see somebody dressed in a different way and 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 we become interested and think wow that's beautiful that's really interesting i've never seen that you know so different worlds so one person's living in a world you know which is more judging rejecting another person living in a world which is more curious and interested um so uh so we interpret the world through our perceptions and we make it part of this story of you know of what life is that we create it said that um <clears throat> that when europeans arrived on the shores of the new world you know the the people that they saw like they did not see you know the the uh, indigenous people of north america for who they were i mean they were a developed and sophisticated society you know, many many different nations many uh, developed culture and me- most europeans they didn't see it they couldn't take it in it was just too uh too different from the preconceptions they had about what culture and civilization civilization should look like <clears throat> so um yeah more we have attitudes about gender ethnicity class i uh preconceptions about people who are young preconceptions about people who are old <clears throat> we have opinions and beliefs and and we think they're true they give us a sense of being somebody in fact it's very suspect yeah in our society to not have views to not have strong fixed views if you know if you are asked to express an opinion about something and you say I, i don't really know you know then well um you don't know you don't have an opinion you don't you don't feel this way or that way well what do you think do you think it's right or wrong um uh, so just to just to say you know i don't know i, I you know i I can see one way I can see so many different dimensions of this it's it's uh it's it's not really acceptable to 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 be in that stance of not knowing and yet that stance of of not knowing is is mostly the truth of our experience you know that I mean we can of course we can we're we're touched by um by war and by oppression but and there are so many aspects to any story about how about how it's being played out and what are the causes and conditions that gave rise to it and of course there's the story of self the story that we create about self which is also a perception a misperception um so we pull forward threads of memories 
selecting memories, creating a belief in a past, in a project and creating a projected future. Now our memories are not what actually happened. If 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 we were to ask everybody after this retreat to write down their memories as much as they could remember of everything that happened on the retreat. You know, we'd have 35 different stories, right? Because each one of us, according to our perceptions, according to to how we sense, according to our disposition, according to our internal process, are experiencing something different. And so, so what we remember about our, our childhood, our, our community, and so on, it's not what happened. It's how, it's how we are creating story about it. And, um, and then we believe that that story is true. Sometimes, sometimes our memories can change. Like, we meet somebody who, um, who talks to us about their experience, you know, maybe growing up in the same home or, or, or um, going through a similar experience. And then sometimes our memories can shift as we gain understanding uh, about maybe another person's perspective or what that person was going through at the time. <clears throat> so, so this storyline that we create about a self you know, has this idea of a self in control uh, like that, you know, that image that, uh, that Bill uh, gave you know, about a little self in there behind the eyes driving so we have this idea that somehow even though we didn't always feel in control that somehow that self is in there in control and and but if we look more closely or if we look with dharma eyes we can perhaps understand that that these Thoughts and memories that exist in the mind now um, are are not what actually happened. Uh, they're not who we are now. Uh, that self no longer exists. Uh, disappeared along with the co- the conditions that were experienced in that moment, in each moment. And and so, you know, we can um, we can hold. Uh, the sense of you know who we are in a, in a different way, in a lighter way, in a way that is more open and and less rigid and um, uh, solidified. You know, we're, we're not saying that there is no self in a, in a relative way. That you know, there's a body, there's relationships. You know, we have our preferences, but to be to believe in the self as being who we are, who we ultimately are, is where we 
are lost in illusion and the appearance of things. So there is a reality. We are that reality. Our deepest desire is to know that we are that ultimate reality, that we are not something separate and apart. In our depth, I I, I feel this to be true, in our depth, in every cell of our being, we're really longing to know that we are ultimate, we are that truth, we are that being, we are that unity. There's um, there's a, a saying by St. Augustine, uh, you know, there are many words that are used to point to that ultimate truth. Um, God, uh, Nibbana, um, thusness, uh, the ground of being, all of these words just can point because truth is beyond words. The ultimate truth is is not something that we can experience through the mind. But there's a, a saying by St. Augustine um, that our hearts are restless until they rest in thee. You know, this is a, a, a kind of a prayer. Our hearts are restless until they rest in thee. And I think this speaks of the longing. Um, Rumi talks about this in his poetry, about the longing for union with God. <clears throat> and and the irony is that that we're never apart. We're never apart from who we truly are. We're never, we're never separated. It's only our belief that we are that, that keeps us feeling apart. We're so, we're, we're, it, it is who we are and yet we overlook it. And we grasp at things to feed and and gratify the senses, thinking somehow that will bring the fulfillment that we that we long for. You've never been apart from your true nature. <coughs> there is nothing that can separate you from who you are. Yet it is it is not an it. It is not something that we can point to. Language quickly falls down when we try to talk about this truth. This is awareness beyond words. When I read the um, the guided the, the pointing out instructions last night, you know, clouds float by, thoughts float by. Emotions float by. And you are not those because you are seeing them. And you are not even the witness because that's a reification of something. But there is an awareness which is 
knowing everything that is unfolding. So this awareness is an inner experience. It's an it's it's an awareness, it's an experience of being. It's an I am. I am, which is outside of time. <clears throat> it's the simple awareness which is left when we let go of our story, our identity, our preferences, and simply be. In the, uh, in the Hebrew scriptures, God says, I am who am. I am who am. This amness, this... Um, Matt Flickstein used to talk about the isness, the isness of being... You are that reality. That is who you truly are. Everything else is just floating by. The thoughts, the physical sensations, the emotions, the, the joys, the 10,000 joys, the 10,000 sorrows. They're, they're all arising in that space of knowing. Um, arising and passing away and we don't cl- when we don't cling to them as me or mine then there's an ease in which the joys and the sorrows can move through us when you understand this you see that you are nothing You are no thing. The teaching to die before you die is taught in every spiritual tradition. Many sages have taught this. To realize the truth, you must see through and let fall away this imagined separate self. So it's a dying to the illusion of self. So it takes courage and commitment to look unwaveringly at this imagined self and see that it is just a play of the mind, how it comes and goes, rising and falling, with identification, with desire, aversion, and delusion, in reaction to what is pleasant and unpleasant. There's a um, a, a text uh, from the uh, Buddhist scriptures Suppose a man who was not blind, so somebody who can see, beheld the many bubbles on the Ganges as they drove along, and he watched them and carefully examined them. Then after he carefully examined them, they would appear to him empty, unreal, and unsubstantial. In exactly the same way does the meditator behold all the material phenomena, feelings, perceptions, mental formations, and states of consciousness, whether they be of the past, of the present, or the future, far or near. And he watches them and examines them carefully. And after carefully examining them, they appear to him empty, void, and without a self.
the heart the heart sutra says the essence of all beings is emptiness there is nothing in them to be emptied out of them they are already buddhas their buddha nature does not need to be established and the buddha said there is nothing whatsoever which is to be clung to as me or mine so when we're not clinging to anything as me or mine then we know that there is nothing there is nothing which is me and there is no worry or doubt that anything might be me there is nothing there that we know that there is nothing which is mine i can't say that that i can possess if there's no i how can i possess anything as mine and there is no worry or doubt that something could be mine so you know all the worry that we have about our possessions our reputation the way people see us the way we come across whether we're liked or not liked you know we can just be so much lighter about this it's not that we don't use things but we know that they're not self they're not me or mine <clears throat> so so that that was about understanding and seeing that you are nothing and being nothing and then finally and being everything being nothing you are everything and and that is all and so what does it mean to be everything what does it mean that that there's no separation is there anyone that that i can close my heart to is there anyone or any any expression of life that i can reject because it's it's who i am it's part of who i am there's um there's a uh, a way Matt Flickstein would talk about this which is uh, he draw a big circle and then he draw a whole bunch of sets of eyes and he'd say this big circle is the allness of things the everythingness and and that the quality of that everythingness is is boundless love it's complete connection because if we're all in this and we're we're all in love so we're all in love together and that's the that's the dawning that's the dawning experience the more and more self falls away separation falls away defensiveness i need to get for myself i need to prove myself i need 
you know, I'm in competition. The more we become, uh, you know, just light and permeable and and open, the more that our hearts open, our hearts open to ourselves, to our own suffering, and in the same way, we see that despite our superficial differences, differences of personality, differences of, you know, the way we, uh, we, we appear, our skin color, our hair color, our eye color, our the way we dress, at just, you don't have to go very deep to see, you know, we're all really so alike in the ways that we long to be free, that we long to love and be loved, that we uh, want to connect, be connected in our lives, deeply connected in our lives. And um, and so this sense of, of, uh, of kindness and connection and love uh, for even for everyone we meet, everyone we know. Um, it's not to deny that we have special relationships with, with people in our lives. Um, all, in, in a way, those relationships teach us to love more deeply. And, uh, and that love can extend to all forms of life. So when we know we are everything, everything lives in us and through us. Life lives through us. So, so there's a, a poem um, called Hokusai Says. Uh, and, uh, and the last lines are, Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. Let life live through you. So let's sit for just a minute. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.